Welcome back to Couple Goals with us and I'm. Hey, what's up? What is up? Back in force. I am back. Are back. I have had my research ready for hours. How are you feeling? Oh. Update them on your okay. health status. So you guys, I left the house. What is this voice? What are you, what are you doing? I am doing a bit. <laughs> okay. This is how I talk now. Oh. It's a weird part of the hysterectomy. They took my vocal cords. So I left the house on Thursday to go to the doctor and found out I have, my incision is infected. So womp womp. But then I left the house voluntarily on Saturday. So that was cool. But you're recovering and better? Well, I was recovering better before I left the house on Saturday and bled a lot because I pushed myself too far. But yeah. Oof. I'm getting better. All right. Well, I have I have no updates on me. Status quo. Doing my thing. Enjoying the Mandalorian. Uh, I watched a bunch of movies while you were gone Saturday. Cool. Me and Mason hung out and watched the new Child's Play movie, which was surprisingly entertaining. We followed that up with Toy Story 4. Because thematically, it seemed like the right thing to do. And then we watched Blazing Saddles. Mason had never seen that. You're making it sound like I left for a weekend away. It, well, this is how long you were gone. <laughs> this, is how, this is how much stuff we got done. And then Child's, the new Child's Play reminded me of an episode of The Simpsons, which every episode is on Disney+. Plus, and I had just watched this recently, so it was kind of fresh in my memory. One of the earlier episodes from season four, I want to say the Treehouse of Terror uh, 3, I believe. And it's the episode where uh, Homer gets Bart a crusty doll, a talking crusty doll, and it's evil. It keeps trying to kill Homer. And due to the setup of the new Child's Play movie, since it's different from the original where a disgruntled worker basically programs this thing to be evil. It reminded me of The Simpsons because the the Krusty doll was evil because the in the factory he, he had a little switch on his back and it was it was set to evil instead of good. <laughs> yeah. So he just hit the switch and and the, so I thought that was just kind of funny. But yeah, yeah. I got a I got a new story. You want to hear it? No. All right, I'm gonna tell everybody else then. They said they all said yes in unison. Uh, all right. So, I don't think so. What's that? I don't think they did. So people have probably already heard the first part of this news story, which is a piece of artwork sold for $120,000. It was a banana. How much could tape, one banana cost? Duct taped to a wall or a canvas. $10. Some rich asshole paid one hundred and twenty grand for it. But the story <sighs> continues. The, uh, all right. This is, I'm getting this from the uh, BBC.com. Uh, all right. An artwork of an overripe banana duct taped to a wall that sold for 120 grand has been eaten by a separate performance artist. The artwork, titled, com titled Comedian by Italian artist Maurizio Catalan, was on display at the International Gallery, uh, I don't know how to say this, Perotin at Art Basel in Miami. Three buyers bought the limited edition pieces of the banana art this week, but performance artist David Datuna pulled it from the wall, peeled it, and devoured it on Saturday. He posted on his Instagram saying, Art performance by me. I love Maurizio Catalan artwork, and I really love this installation. It's very delicious. Despite Wait. the additional anger of a member of staff, the banana was swiftly replaced, and no further action will be taken. The art reportedly comes with a certificate of authenticity, meaning owners can replace the banana. Detuna did not destroy the artwork. The banana is the idea. Lucian okay, Terrace. let me get this straight. <laughs> Police were later deployed to guard the replacement banana. So you are buying the idea of a banana. I, uh, I don't know what the fuck. I want to be so rich that that seems like a good use of 120 grand. 
that I'm just oh yeah that's, that's funny I'll 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 spend a, how how much could one banana cost like you said right ten dollars ten dollars one hundred twenty thousand dollars twenty thousand dollars whoo that's a very upsetting story so wait so let me get this straight <laughs> I'm I need to talk through this let's do it so this other dude ate the banana yeah. Then they replaced the banana. Yep. And they were like, it's fine. You can replace the banana whenever. Yeah. And the thing is still good. It's still fine. Yeah. So all you're buying is actually the certificate and the canvas and or I whatever. I guess whenever. Yeah. So it was a wall. So maybe when the exhibition's over, they get the banana and the duct tape. And yeah. And you, you just replace it at will. Why spend 120 grand on that? Wait, wait. Why? Why? I don't care how much money you have. Why? Hmm. What's interesting? Why? And somebody ate the banana. Like, whew. this is this is America. These are the people who voted for Trump. <laughs> so the performance artist. Yeah. Did he get paid to eat the banana? No, I don't. I don't know. I, I feel like he just went in and ate the banana. Because the, the staff was angry at first, but they replaced it and it was fine. It wasn't even considered stolen or. Yeah, the certificate of authenticity, meaning owners can replace the banana. You don't need to do that, guys. Like, all right, but an example of something that is is worth some money, and to me it's a lot of money, is my New Mutants number 98, the first appearance of Deadpool, is worth about $400. So I sent it away to be graded and encased in, you know, something that will prevent it from aging and, and get, taking any damage and everything. So it will go up in value and retain its value. If I take that out and eat it <laughs> or do, you know, <laughs> crumple it up, uh, dog ear one of the pages, the value goes down or eat it or eat it. You can't just you, replace it. Yeah. With a new one from the store. Right. There, that was there just aren't, grown. Aren't first printings of New Mutants 98 everywhere like there are bananas. And somehow that banana is worth more than well, the first here's appearance the other of Deadpool. Thing. You have to spend money to get another banana. So you're like, you're constantly investing in this piece of art. <laughs> but if you're spending 120 grand on it. How yeah. much does another banana cost? <laughs> exactly. 39 cents. Like it's, I don't know, man. Yeah, that's. I don't like it. I'm against it. Yeah, so that's some, that's I'm some fucked up stupid dumb shit. Art. I'm for, I'm for people reading into art how they want to, but that's I'm, not. I'm upset that I didn't come up with it. I didn't know I could just tape a banana to a wall and make $120,000. See, you can't. Here's the thing. If I, if you came home and I just taped a banana to our wall. <laughs> and put it on eBay. <laughs> nobody's coming here and giving me 120 grand for it. If I just fucking taped a banana to the wall, you'd be like, Can, I want to make a smoothie. I'm taking this banana down. I think, see, I think the conception is that rich people must be smart because they have all that money, right? Mm -mm. But obviously that's not the case. It's very yeah. much more Emperor's New Clothes kind of thing or whatever that story is. Emperor's New Groove, the one with the llama? <laughs> no. Uh, is that similar, though? I don't know. I just watched it. Yeah. I don't know the Emperor's New Clothes. I know the Emperor's oh, well, New Groove. Was, the Emperor has no clothes kind of thing, like where the, the guy bamboozles the Emperor. He's like, oh, I have this wonderful outfit for you. It's so amazing, and but it, it he doesn't have anything. He tells him that only like smart or super smart people can see it or something like that. I don't remember the ex exact story. So the the emperor puts it on, but he's just nude, and then he goes through the town, and he's just naked, and he's you know all proud, that's and everybody's terrible... just laughing at him. And that's that's rich people basically. They're like what? a banana is worth one hundred twenty thousand dollars because they don't. Well, emperor's new groove is about David Spade. <laughs> okay, and a llama. He becomes a llama. Becomes a llama. Yeah. I saw it once. I don't remember it, though. You put it on the other day, and then he went to sleep. Yeah, I put it on for you. I thought you might like it. And then you tried to tell me Iago was in it, but that's fucking Aladdin. Yeah, I don't really know my yeah. Disney animation movies. Yeah. It was like... Never this, a big fan of those. You were all like, oh, yeah. They do a lot of singing. Like, Gilbert Godfrey's in it as a fucking parrot. Right, yeah. And I was like, no, that's Aladdin. <laughs> that's what I thought. I don't know. I don't know those movies. Yeah. None of them were very good. I liked Hercules. I enjoyed that Hercules. one. Hercules. You put the Glad and Gladiator. I thought that was a, a fun one. I really liked. Uh, he went from zero to hero in no time flat. 
James, what's his name? James Spader? James Spade? No. Is that the guy's name? James? I don't remember. The guy who plays Hades. Bummer. I can't remember his name. Oh, he's in, um, he's in, man, this is fun. It's got to be really fun for the listeners to know exactly what <laughs> we're talking about. They're just about. screaming at us, I'm sure. He's in Clerks the Animated Series when the... Um, James Woods. James Woods is the guy I'm thinking Yep. Of. When there's the Outbreak episode. Yes. Yeah, James Woods. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Was well. that fun for you? Was that fun for you, <laughs> listeners? To they scream it? Through their listening device at the wall. Or to just be like, you know what? Fuck this and turn it off. So who wants to go first? Ladies first. I got the topic. <laughs> I know. What do you got? You know a little about this, cool. but uh, you're going to listen. Are you doing RoboCop? Anyway. You know, I like talking about RoboCop. You're going to listen anyway RoboCop. and engage with me. <clears throat> so in 1998, Keith Ranieri, you recognize that name? I do. I don't know why. And Nancy Salzman founded Nexium as a personal development oh, okay. company offering the executive success programs and a range of techniques aimed at self-improvement. Ranieri claimed that the program's main emphasis was to have people experience more joy in their lives. So during Nexium seminars, students, 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 Nexium students, Nexium students. We're expected to call Ranieri and Salzman Vanguard and Prefect, respectively. That brings me joy. <laughs> I always get joy from false reverence. Yeah. So the Hollywood Reporter stated that Ranieri adopted the title of Vanguard from his favorite arcade game, Vanguard. I don't remember that one. In which, in which um, the destruction of one's enemies increased one's own power. That's a pretty common theme in video games, but yeah. Yeah, like everyone, <laughs> like every game. So within the organization, the reasoning for the titles were that Ranieri was the leader of the philosophical movement and Salzman was his first student. By 2003, some 3,700 people. So this is in five years. 3,700 people had taken part in the executive success principles classes. All right. You've already lost me. H how? How do you sell something like that? Like, do you have marketing money? Well, yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. He, um, Ranieri had taken a take-home IQ test, you know, like on Seinfeld. Yeah. And he had class classified as one of as world's smartest man. And he got in the Guinness Book of World Records, but only in the Australia print version. <laughs> doesn't count as anyway. the world's smartest man really and he was in the way he met Salzman this isn't in my notes this is just me going off of memory from reading I watched a documentary on it yeah and then I read a Rolling Stone article on it and I read a New York Times article on it and I read a CNN article on it yeah and then of course Wikipedia so in addition to my notes this is just me recalling but so he met Nancy Salzman at a place, and I don't remember the name of the company, but at a multi-level marketing scheme before they formed this. Oh, so okay. he was already wealthy from a multi-level marketing scheme previously. But the, And this also goes, this is uh, the opposite of what I was saying earlier. This is somebody who got rich and is smart. So that's... He's very, the problem with, he's a psychopath. Well, yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying you can you can be a psychopath and be really smart. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is this is one of those guys. It's not, those not like a you, Donald Trump type. It's when you abuse your your intelligence or your intellect. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so in five years, some thirty seven hundred people had taken part in in this in these classes, including former Surgeon General Antonio Novello. Enron executive Stephen Cooper and entrepreneur Richard Branson, who later denied taking the classes. Hmm. And in the early 2000s, Seagram heiresses Claire and Sarah Bronfman became attached to the organization. Wow, so he's getting some highfalutin folks in there. So, yeah, this is real early on. This yeah. is like in the first five years. So Nexium's training was a trade secret. 
and subject to non-disclosure agreements. But reportedly, it used a technique the organization called rational inquiry to facilitate personal and professional development. In October of 2003, For Forbes published an article on Nexium and Ranieri, and Vanity Fair subsequently reported of the article. This is a quote. People at Nexium were stunned, expecting a positive story. The top ranks had spoken to Forbes, including Ranieri, Salzman, Sarah Bra and Sarah Brownfin. Um, what upset them were all were above all Edgar Bronfman's remarks. Now, Edgar Bronfman is the um, Seagram's. I figured owner. Yeah, right. Think, yeah. So he said, I think it's a cult. Going on to say that what troubled him was the emotional and financial investment in Nexium by his daughters to whom he hadn't spoken to in months. In 2006, Forbes published an article about the Bronfman sisters stating that they had taken out a line of credit to loan Nexium $2 million. Okay. Repayable through personal training sessions and phone consultations. Okay. With Salzman. I'm not angry. So these, these two bitches take out a line of credit. <laughs> right? Yeah. And they give it to this company. And it's repayable with bullshit, basically. Like, talk to me about things you know. And they're, well, it's not, it's not through, it's not bullshit. See, these, it's are through the, coaching. these are the stupid rich people I was talking about earlier. It's through coaching, right? Yeah. But like, if your dad has a company this size, you have access to legitimate coaches. Access to a lot of things. You don't need these people. Yeah. So after um, actress Kristen Crook became involved with Nexium in 2006. Hey, she was on Smallville, too. Salzman and her daughter, Lauren, went to Vancouver to recruit Crook's Smallville co-star, Allison Mack. Yeah. That's what you meant by two for the listener. Oh, yeah. That because Sean, now. Sean knows a little Sean knows a little story. Well, he watched he watched the documentary with me. I only knew about this because of Allison Mack's involvement. So it popped up on the websites I frequent, the comic book news and, and movie news and, you know, the nerd news sites. When when the story broke a couple years ago, that's the only reason I was aware of it. So the younger Salzman was herself a junior Nexium leader and she bonded with Mac and they convinced her to join. Through Crook, or I'm sorry, although Crook eventually did leave Nexium. Mac persuaded her parents to take courses and eventually wrapped um, on Smallville in 2011 and then moved to New York to be near Nexium's home base in Albany. Nexium has been described as a pyramid scheme, a sex trafficking operation, Jesus. A, a cult, and a sex cult. <laughs> And in, people just didn't notice or that's what they were looking for. So that's the other side of it. Maybe you just have people who are looking for sex cults. Maybe that's a thing They're, that maybe they want to be. I'll, in a cult. I'll talk about that in a little bit. And that's not at the case. OK, well, I'm just I just don't understand how you end up in a cult and you're completely oblivious to the fact that you're in a cult. I don't understand that. I thought I was in a cult and I went to a church and I was like, this is a fucking cult. And church basically is a cult. It's just yeah, larger. It is. And, and and again, it's like Joe Rogan said, the difference between a cult and religion is if the creator is still alive or not. Mm -hmm. In a 2010 article in the Times Union, former Nexium coaches characterized students as prey for use by Ranieri in satisfying his sexual or gambling related pro proclivities. Mm. Kristen Keefe, a longtime partner of Ranieri and the mother of his child, left the group in 2014 and described Ranieri as dangerous, stating that all of the worst things you know about Nexium are true. Hmm. What year was that? 2014. Nexium has been associated with several related organizations. JNS was a, was a society aimed at women, while the Society of Protectors was aimed primarily at men. A third group, which is the one we're focusing on today, was known by the acronym DOS, Dominus 
which sorry if I'm it was a Latin phrase that was reportedly that reportedly translates into master over slave women. Hmm. Sign me up. Can't wait. Do your research, folks. <laughs> Do your research. In in 2006, Ranieri founded Rainbow Culture Garden, which was an international chain of childcare organizations, which children were to be exposed to seven different languages. I don't have anything bad to report on that front. <laughs> so the women recruited as DOS slaves, they, as they recounted on the stand, were told to give up collateral as the price of entry such as videos of themselves masturbating or postmarked confessions their relatives or loved ones had sexually abused them. They were told to text their masters close-up photos of unshaven vulvas, always keeping their faces in shots so they would be identifiable. Sign me up. They were told... Seems legit. They were told to stick to low-calorie diets to wake themselves up in the middle of the night to respond to readiness drills or texts from their masters, or they were at risk of being paddled. Now, I don't have this in my notes either, but it's another thing I know. They also had at their Albany location. Yeah. They also had a full dungeon. Okay. For puppy play. Oh, like where you walk somebody around? Yeah, like on 30 Rock. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they did puppy play specifically. Puppy play. I'm guessing that was a Ranieri thing. So many, though not all of them, were branded. And they talked about how excruciatingly painful it was. How you could hear the, cauter the cauterizing pen sizzle through the raw skin. And how women screamed so loud that they had to actually give you a bite, a cloth to bite on. Yeah. I remember watching so, that and how... Yeah, because when people think of a brand, they think of like how you brand livestock, you know, right? It's how like it's like a, a symbol, one thing, and they but stick this it in was the more fire. Like this reminded me, I had a wood burn, a wood burning kit when I was younger. We have one now. It's down the hall. Anyway, but I've never. It's used like that. a pen. It's like a pen, but yeah. it's you know it's you know it's hot and razor sharp. Yeah. And literally drew these things into them. So yeah, that would be incredibly fucking painful. Yep. And it took like forty five minutes. Jesus. Like it wasn't fast. Christ. So DOS slaves weren't told that they were being branded with Ranieri's initials, nor were they told that Ranieri was the mastermind behind the whole group. Instead, they were told that it was Mac and the top line masters at that um, they were all DOS badasses. So it was like they were being led basically as a an orthodox feminist group meant to help women build discipline and overcome intimacy issues. What the fuck? Yeah. So the women all looked somewhat similar. They were all in their 30, early 30s to mid 40s. They were dark eyed, tastefully dressed. And above all else, they were slender and almost like painfully thin. Hmm. So Ranieri was obsessed with controlling women's weight to the degree that some of the women's fingers were stained orange with the carrots and squash that they ate exclusively. Hmm. Yep. Sign me up. He was. Is it unabashed? Yeah. Okay. I always wondered if it was that or bashed. Unabashedly. Unabashed. Anyway. Unabashed. Either one. About weaponizing their insecurities. Insecurities. I don't know what insecurity is. Insecurity about weight. Telling one partner that the extra 10 pounds she'd gained hurts my heart physically. And he refused to sleep with her until she had shed them. Wow. Within the inner circle, sex with Renuri was positioned as a crucial step towards achieving enlightenment. I bet. I bet a spiritual reward in and of itself. And the women who were allowed to have sex with Ranieri was said to be, quote, working with him. Unsurprisingly, the idea was primarily propagated by Ranieri himself, what? who claimed that the women who swallowed his semen sometimes saw an ethereal blue light. Hey, sign me up. This is all believable, man. I'm a, what kind of fucking moron. And that those Ugh. who... That those who per who refused to participate in the group oral sex sessions weren't committed to their personal growth. Okay. In I just, my mind, the mind boggles, right? 
Could you imagine? Yeah, that's what that's what personal development's all about. Yeah. Come so. guzzling. <laughs> <laughs> How are you gonna be enlightened if you don't drink my cum? I don't know, man. Go sit in a sex box from a couple episodes back. <laughs> Fucking in, hell, people are stupid. In March 2018, Ranieri was arrested and indicted on a variety of charges related to DOS, including sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, conspiracy to commit forced labor, and he was arrested in Mexico. He was held um, in custody in New York after appearing in a federal judge. Um, I'm sorry, federal court in Fort Worth. And then his federal trial began on May 9th in 2019. On June 19th, 2019, he was convicted of racketeering and sex trafficking. On April 20th, 2018, Allison Mack was arrested and indicted on similar charges to Ranieri's. According to prosecutors, she had recruited women into first into Nexium and then into DOS. And she coerced them into engaging sexual activity with Ranieri and performing menial tasks for which she was allegedly paid by Ranieri. Hmm. Mac was further alleged to be second in command of Nexium after Ranieri. On hmm. April 8th, 2019, she pled guilty to racketeering conspiracy and racketeering charges. And she was scheduled for sentencing in September 2019. But the conviction was postponed by the court to grant sufficient time to conduct pre-sentencing investigation. On March 13th, 2019, Nancy Salzman pled guilty to um, racketeering criminal conspiracy. In, in also in March of 2019, Lauren Salzman, her daughter, pled guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy. They're both on house arrest. Also, FYI, since we don't know what racketeering is, I did a little bit of research on that. I've been told so many times and I never remember what the fuck it is. So it was a term coined by the Employers Association of Chicago in June 1927 in a statement about the influence of the organized crime of the Teamsters. Okay. And it includes, so like some of the things that could be a racketeering activity would be like a fencing racket of stolen goods or money laundering or fraud or embezzlement or kidnapping or murder or murder for hire, loan sharking, drug trafficking, extortion, prostitution, dog fighting. Basically everything is can, racketeering is racket can also be charged as racketeering. That's weird. And then you can just get house arrest for it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's horrible. It's horrible basically crimes. a racket. And then. That like it is a racket, like a racket is a noun, and then racketeering is the verb. Okay. Yeah. I'll never understand what racketeering is. <laughs> That's just all racketeering is literally just the act of being a criminal. I think. It's 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 like that episode of Thirty Rock when she Nobody asked Jack, "What is what is racketeering?" No one knows lemon. Yeah, it, but it all came about from the Teamsters, and the Teamsters doing shady shit, and and then the early nineteen hundreds. Huh. Interesting, right? Is interesting. People are so fucking stupid. It makes me angry. Just give me your money. Just, just give me your. If you're stupid, just give me your money, and I can. I have to do is start you. a cult. Yeah. If you really want people to give you their your money, fucking shoot jizz all over your face, whatever the fuck. No, you will not. <laughs> if it's making us money, come on now. All right. So this week is going to be all about the beginnings. Of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, starting with 2008's Iron Man. A Space Odyssey? No, that, that... 2001 Space oh. Odyssey. So, uh, before we get into that, we're just going to go into a little history of Iron Man, the comic book character. So, Iron Man, the comic book character, was co-created by Stan Lee, developed by scripter Larry Lieber, and designed by artists Don Heck and... The wonderful Jack Kirby. His first appearance was in Tales of Suspense, number 39, which was cover dated for March of 1963. It's about a year after Spider-Man came out. He received his own title, Iron Man, in May of 1968, about five years later. You've never done Iron Man before? I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not a very good producer. I just just go with what I feel like going with. 
All right. So in the 90s, when I first got into comics, Iron Man was not exactly an A-lister in the world of comic books. Yeah. The Avengers weren't super popular either. A lot of people will probably find that hard to believe, considering where we're at now in pop culture. So the most popular characters at the time were Spider-Man and almost anything to do with X-Men. X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, X-Force, New Mutants. Pretty much any X-Men or mutant related book was a top seller. Uh, I'm only talking about the Marvel comics, not really DC. DC uh, Batman perennially is a top character. And at the time, remember, Superman was really big. It was right after he died and came back in four different forms. Do you keep a list of words you want to use in conversation? Like I perennial? do not. I <laughs> Sometimes I pull some shit out of this this worthless brain of mine. But yeah, no, I don't. I, I don't even have that written here. It just made sense. I, that's not a note. Yeah, because I this never. This word is perennially. I never use that word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what Steve told me one day when I was talking to him on the phone, he, he said something about I use words he never thinks of sometimes, yeah. which is funny to me because I don't I don't read. I don't I don't feel like I have a, a big never, vocabulary I'm never at all. Like, <laughs> like all right, all right, bitch, calm down. Bring that shit down. Anyway. So I bought a few Iron Man books because I liked the look of his suit. I was a little bit familiar with the character. However, I actually preferred the gray and silver colors of War Machine, who had just recently gotten his own book. And played uh, by Don Cheadle. And the more down to oh, earth. Not in the first movie, though. The more down to earth character of James Rhodes, who was a soldier versus being a multimillionaire industrialist uh, back then. So I never really got into the character of Iron Man. He never seemed to be a character of real significance. That first movie, who's that guy who plays him? Terrence Howard. I don't like him. Um, and most of the comic buying public seemed to feel the same as I did. He never felt like a really popular or important character. So when I found out they were making an Iron Man movie, I was surprised, but also intrigued when I read it was going to be home by Jon Favreau. So I was a big Jon Favreau fan due to his writing and directing on movies like Swingers, the movie Made, which yeah. is an underrated gem. There's a movie called Made, M-A-D-E, uh, written and directed by John Favreau. You got a horse outside? Don't hit me with your whip. <laughs> There's so many great lines from that movie. I texted you one just the other day when you were like, why are you in the back seat?" And I was like, I'm a tall drink of water. Yeah, I got to stretch my shit out. Yeah, it's John Favreau and Vince Vaughn, and it, it's a fantastic movie. I, I still reference that shit. Like, uh, Phase on Love is in it. Yeah. It's Who played Big, Big Worm in Friday. And um, he's, uh, he's also an elf. He's another an John elf, Favreau And that was the movie. other movie I was going to mention that John Favreau had done that I'd seen. So he hadn't done any action movies that I was aware of, but his character work was always really funny and believable. So I was on board despite never really being a fan of Iron Man. I was always a fan of Marvel comics and characters. So very, very curious. And John Favreau. And John Favreau. So now I'm going to back up a little bit and we're going to go back in time to when talks first commenced for, for Marvel to license the character for use in Hollywood. This goes back to April of 1990. In the way, way back machine. Cool. You were, you were not I was, even nine years old. I was not nine yet. I was eight <laughs> years old. Uh, Universal Studios bought the rights to develop Iron Man for the big screen with Stuart Gordon to direct a low budget film based on the property. By February of 1996, six years later, 20th Century Fox had acquired the rights from Universal. In January of 1997, Nicolas Cage expressed interest in portraying the character. Oh, uh, he can't. He's Ghost Rider. Well, he wasn't yet. And Nicolas Cage is a huge comic book fan fanboy. Just and that's that's cool. He's never been shy about that. Um, he's always trying to get in on the comic book movies. <laughs> like mm -hmm. 100% and he got Ghost Rider, and it's like, be, come on. That's another guy that would make a great Moon Knight because Moon Knight's fucking crazy. And I think Nicolas Cage would make a great Moon Knight because of that. All right, so uh, then in September of 1998, Tom Cruise expressed interest in producing as well as starring in an Iron Man film. He would that's have also been a, a good fucking, choice. That's a fucking crazy guy right there. Yeah. You want to talk about crazy. Uh, so some guy named Jeff Vintar and Iron Man co-creator Stan Lee, they co-wrote a story for Fox, which Vintar then adapted into a screenplay. It included it included a new science fiction fiction origin for the character and, fe off. and featured Modoc, 
as the villain. Do you know who Modoc is? Have you seen Modoc? I'm sure I've shown you Modoc. He's yep. in video games. He, oh, how to describe Modoc? Does he have like a brain? He's like a big fat guy in like a, a hovering, almost like wheelchair. He's got little tiny legs and arms, and he does. He looks kind of like a brain in a shell, like an orange yeah. shell. Yeah. And Modoc stands for mental organism designed only for killing. He's getting his own cartoon, by the way, or he was anyway. I don't know if that's still on, on the books now that Disney Plus exists, but he was supposed to get a show on Hulu, a cartoon where Pat Oswalt was going to voice him. He's certainly not getting it on Hulu. <laughs> well, they they own controlling interest in Hulu, so I don't know. Yeah, that explains why the Freeform shows all go there. Yeah. Even though even like they're not going to Disney Plus for whatever reason. Right. All right. So Tom Rothman, who was the president of production at Fox, credited the screenplay with finally making him understand the character, you know, by bringing in Modoc. Uh, he's a relatable villain. <laughs> Everybody's like, yeah. Everybody just Modoc is my spirit animal. <laughs> Google Modoc. M O D O K. Google it, click on images, and then have a good laugh at Modoc's design. I it's like it. Like John absurd. tells us all how to Google. Uh, okay, it's uh, it's very perennially of you. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's, it's boomerific. All right. Uh, lost my spot. All right. So then in May 1999, some guy named Jeffrey Kane was hired to rewrite Venter and Lee's script. That October, Quentin Tarantino was approached to write and direct the film. And then Fox sold the rights to New Line Cinema the following December, reasoning that although uh, the, the script they had was strong, the studio had too many Marvel superheroes in development and we can't make them all because they own X-Men. And this was uh, this was right when X-Men took off. So they just decided to focus on that property. They shouldn't have. Yeah, it's Fox. All right, so by July of 2000, the film was now being written for New Line by some guy named Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio and some other guy named Tim McCanley's. McCanley's script used the idea of a Nick Fury cameo to set up his own film. Not a bad idea. In June 2001, New Line entered talks with some guy named Joss Whedon, a oh, fan yeah. of the character... To direct some dude, some dude. And in December 2002, McCanley's had turned in a completed script. In December of 2004, the studio attached director Nick Cassavetes to the project for a targeted release of 2006. Screenplay drafts were hand were written by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller and David Hader. David Hader is the voice of Solid Snake in the Metal Gear Solid games. In case you're wondering, um, you'll never believe this, but I wasn't. <laughs> Uh, and th they pitted Iron Man against his father, Howard Stark, who becomes War Machine. Who? Boo. Howard Stark. Yeah. Now he's going to be the villain and be War Machine, even though. Yeah. Anyway. So after two years of unsuccessful development and the deal with Cassavetes falling through, New Line Cinema returned the film rights to Marvel. So now we're into new November of 2005. Marvel Studios worked to start development from scratch and announced Iron Man as their first independent feature as the character was their only major one not already depicted in live action. I gotta tell you, it's not really true because Captain America wasn't out there either. But anyway, I don't think I, I don't think I could work in movies. It just sounds so stressful and so oh, many yeah. like letdowns. Well, it, I, I follow a lot of writers so on Twitter, starts. and they're you know they're like, oh, I sold you know I sold my script or whatever, and then you know then they talk about development hell. It gets passed around, it gets rewritten, and eventually they're just like, I'm off the movie. <laughs> it's you know. <laughs> It's like, that sucks, though, you know? Yeah. It's like, I don't... I, no thanks. All right. Uh, all right, where was I? All right. Uh, so, according to associate producer Jeremy Latcham, he said, We went after about 30 writers, and they all passed, saying that they were uninterested in the project due to both the relative obscurity of the character and it being solely a Marvel production. So, are you just seeing how long you can make your beard hairs right now? No. Sean is pulling his beard hairs down to his boobs. <laughs> just play with my beard. I always play with my beard. It's fun to play Sean with. Sean has a really long beard and then like, you Not know, it's like, it's like curly. So when he straightens it out all the way, it's titty length. Titty length. You got some titty length beard hair. All right. Um, all right. In order to build pet. awareness for Iron Man for the, for the general public and put him on the same level of popularity as Spider-Man or the Hulk, Marvel conducted focus groups to help remove the general perception that the character was a robot. Robot. Which actually, in some ways, that's kind of believable because the whole cover for Iron Man in the comics for years and years, and I think possibly even now, 
So you know how at the end of Iron Man, Tony Stark's like, I am Iron Man, right? Supposedly that was not in the script. He just said it. He improv it or whatever. Uh, but in the comics, he always said Iron Man was his robotic bodyguard. It was always the thing. Like it, he, he wasn't Iron Man. It was something he created to protect him. So, I mean, it, it, there's some there's some good reasoning for people to think that. All right. Anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> so after the focus groups proved successful, the information Marvel received helped them formulate an awareness building plan, which included releasing three animated short films ahead of the films released. The shorts were called Iron Man Advertorials and were produced by Tim Miller and Blur Studio. Tim Miller, who went on to direct Deadpool and the most recent Terminator movie. Um, so in April of 2006, they found a director, some guy named John Favreau, and uh, he celebrated getting the job by going on a diet and losing 70 pounds. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Favreau. Then he then gained back to play happy. Eventually he got bigger. That's what I, I get it. I understand. <laughs> I'm, I, I feel like my weight is... I'm, I'm every year I'm like, oh, I'm at my heaviest weight now. It's <laughs> like, wow, I'm still not at my heaviest weight. I mean, I've been at my heaviest weight in the past. Yeah, I'm not back there yet. No, oh, I am. I fully am. Um, so Favreau had wanted to work with Marvel producer Avi Arad on another film. They both on uh, another film, uh, Daredevil. Uh, oh, boo. And and Favreau was in Daredevil. So, well. Everybody hates Ben Affleck. He's the fucking worst. Affleck. So Affleck. after after working on Daredevil together, Favreau wanted to continue, continue the relationship. So the director found the opportunity to create a politically ambitious spy movie with Iron Man, citing inspiration from Tom Clancy, James Bond, and RoboCop. All right. Love RoboCop references. You won't even look at me. Yeah, I'm ignoring you. <laughs> There's a RoboCop reference in the new Child's Play. Yes, there is. RoboCop is amazing. Some, some I people got you RoboCop it. stuff for your birthday. Like I know. I'm, I'm Dude, not I against, it. not against RoboCop. I just feel like he doesn't get his due. I don't. I feel like people don't realize how amazing that first movie was. <laughs> I can tell by the way there are references in modern cinema that everybody hates it. <laughs> no, but it's a select few people. Small group of RoboCop fans out there. All right. Um, he compared his approach to an independent film as if uh, Robert Altman had directed Superman. Uh, Favreau wanted to make Iron Man a story of an adult man literally reinventing himself after discovering discovering the world is far more complex than he originally believed. So he changed the Vietnam War origin of the character to Afghanistan, which obviously makes more sense because he, he, well, he, he didn't want to do like a period piece. So um, uh, he called upon... Uh, Mark Miller, great comic book writer, Brian Michael Bendis, Joe Casada, and Tom Brivort, Axel Alonzo, and Ralph Macchio, not that Ralph Macchio, uh, the, the Marvel Comics Ralph Macchio, were also, they were all called upon by Favreau to give advice on the script, which is a brilliant thing to do. Go to the fucking comic book guys for your comic book fucking movie. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. So many people do not do that. They're like, I'm Hollywood, I know what I'm doing, and they're wrong. So he planned to cast a newcomer in the in the title role initially. Uh, as he said, these movies don't require an expensive star. Iron Man is the star. The superhero is the star. Uh, the success of X-Men and Spider-Man without being star-driven pieces uh, reassures the executives that the film does have an upside commercially. However, September 2006, Robert Downey Jr. was cast. History was made. Favreau chose Downey, who was a fan of the comic, because he felt the actor's past made him an appropriate choice for the part, explaining... The best and worst moments of Robert's life have been in the public eye. He had to do he had to find an inner balance to overcome obstacles that went far beyond his career. That's Tony Stark. Fucking brilliant. Character work, which is another right. character work, super, super, super fucking important. So that was a really good casting. Uh he faced opposition from Marvel in casting Downey. But it's a not. shame Robert Downey Jr. is dead now. <laughs> he's he's not. He did he died. <laughs> No, that was that, he died. He was like, that's and then Robert Downey Jr. died. No, that's that's not how movies work. That happened. Um, I miss him. So he he fought for for Robert Downey Jr. saying it was my job as a director to show that it was the best choice creatively. Everybody knew he was talented. And certainly by studying the Iron Man role and developing that script, I realized that the character seemed to line up with Robert in all the good and bad ways. 
Downey earned only $500,000 for the role initially. Well, for a second, I thought he said $5,000. No, <laughs> I was like half oof. a billion dollars for so. And he was a established. Everybody knew who he was. Yeah. But, you know, he, that is that is a shockingly yeah. low amount of money for I'm guessing. That's not what he got for Endgame. <laughs> I don't know if you heard, but he died. He <laughs> no, he no, died. He's, he's not dead. Robert Downey Jr. is alive. He's OK. He didn't. No, those events aren't real. That happened. This is why Maggie can't watch sad movies. She cannot separate fact from fiction. It's a problem. Robert Downey Jr. is dead. Rest mm. in peace. All right. Mm -mm. All right. So Favreau wanted the film to be believable by showing the construction of the Iron Man suit in its three stages. Stan Winston. Rest in peace. Brilliant. Brilliant. Fucking special effects guy. Rest in peace. Robert Downey Jr. No. A fan. He was a fan of the comic book and his company uh, who Favreau worked with on Zathura, a movie I never saw. They built metal and rubber versions of the armor. The Mark One was intended to look like it was built from spare parts. That's the first suit that he builds in the cave, and it looked a lot like Iron Man's original suit from the original comics. Right, that Robert Downey Jr. died. <laughs> um, where are we? Uh, the armor was also designed to have only its top half worn at times. Oh, like uh, Robocop. Yes. Uh... All right, the Mark II resembles an airplane prototype with visible flaps. And they brought in Iron Man comic book artist A.D. Granov, who's fucking amazing, who did a run that I really liked. Uh, and I'm forgetting the name of it now, but they used the idea from it in Iron Man 3. What was the name of that? Extremis. Yes, the Extremis run. So I got I did get back into Iron Man uh, shortly before the movies came out. And just like Captain America... They brought in like in the early 2000s, Marvel started bringing in really brilliant writers and it caught my attention and drew me to characters that I normally wouldn't follow because their stories were so cool that, you know, they were getting they were getting coverage on websites like, oh, you got to read the Winter Soldier. you got to read Civil War. So I bought all those. And the extremist storyline is, is one of them that I, I picked up. But Eddie Greenoff is a fucking amazing artist. And he actually uh uh, Adam Jones, the guitar player from Tool, is friends with him, and he's an artist too. He used works, in, and, and he's a huge comic book fan. So mm -hmm. he had Grainoff design a lot of Tool's tour shirts right now, mm -hmm. which is fucking awesome. All right, uh, his designs were the primary inspiration for the films and designs, and he came on board the film after he recognized his work on John Favreau's MySpace page. <laughs> so, MySpace, yeah, because it's you know 2006. Holy shit. MySpace. All right, they streamlined some of his concept art, making it a little bit stealthier. Uh, a little and bit less MySpace-y. Then they also designed the War Machine armor, but it was cut from the script about halfway through pre-production. Filming began on March 12, 2007. There was a lot of improvisation and dialogue scenes because the script was not completed when filming began, which seems to happen a lot more often than you would think. Uh, yeah, like that one thing. What we were watching? Oh, the movies that made us. Yeah. Favreau felt that improvisation would make the film feel more natural. He was correct. Yeah. Um, multiple takes were done as Downey wanted to try something new each time. It was that, it was Downey's idea to have Stark hold a news conference on the floor, and he created the speech Stark makes when he when demonstrating the Jericho weapon. That's at the beginning of the movie. Uh, Bridges described this approach as, quote, a $200 million student film and noted that it caused stress for Marvel executives when the stars were trying to come up with dialogue on the day of filming scenes. <laughs> I bet. Uh, he also noted that in some instances, he and Downey would swap characters for rehearsal to see how their own lines sounded. Uh, the dialogue for the Nick Fury cameo was also changed on set with comic book writer Brian Michael Bendis providing three pages of dialogue for the part and the filmmakers choosing the best lines for filming on the set. The Nick Fury cameo was filmed with the skeleton crew in order to keep it a secret, but rumors appeared on the Internet only days later. Uh, Marvel Studios president, some guy named Kevin Feige, subsequently had the scene removed from all preview prints in order to maintain the surprise and keep, keep fans guessing. Uh, an alternate version of the Nick Fury post credit scene was filmed in which he specifically said, as if gamma accidents, radioactive bugs, and assorted mutants weren't enough, in reference to Hulk, Spider-Man, and the X-Men, but this was cut due to legal problems with Sony Pictures and 20th Century Fox, who at the time had full ownership of the characters. So in its opening weekend... 
when it when it came out in 2008, Iron Man grossed 98.6 million dollars in the United States and Canada, ranking ranking number one at the box office, giving it the 11th biggest opening weekend of at the time. Uh, where's my next stat? I don't know. It grossed 35.2 million on its first day, giving it the 13th biggest opening day at the time. Iron Man had the second best premiere for a non-sequel behind Spider-Man and the fourth biggest opening for a superhero film. It was also the number one film in the U.S. and Canada in its second weekend, grossing $51.2 million, giving it the 12th best second weekend and the fifth best for a non-sequel. Uh, it ended up earning $318.4 million in the United States and Canada and $266.8 million in other territories for a worldwide gross of $585.2 million and... The rest is history. I think everybody knows what happened after that. But it was still a slow Yeah, build. he died. <laughs> no, he didn't die. We are now like 24 movies in. And he's dead. And Robert Downey Jr. died. This it, movie didn't even snapped. make $600 million, but it was, you know, it was still a big, it was a big hit. And also, the, you know, 11 years ago, that, that was a pretty sizable amount of money still. And for a relatively unknown character. And for to do that well against The Dark Knight which The Dark Knight came out around the same time. And I remember John Favreau saying at one point when he was asked about, oh, well, Dark Knight is dwarfing your numbers or whatever, which of course it was. It was a sequel. It was a Batman movie. And John Favreau's like, fine, we'll be Pepsi to their Coke. And it's just really funny now when you think about it, because I, I don't think yeah. they're the Pepsi anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, would I don't say. think they're the is Pepsi. OK, that's not Marvel now. That's not no. the MCU. I think times have changed greatly. And yeah, so that's just a, a little bit of history behind the development of Iron Man. And that's kind of humble beginnings. And now they're the biggest fucking movies ever made. And it's 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 been a really cool, fun journey as a, as a comic book fanboy. I bet. That's it. That's all I got. Cool. That was very, it was done perennially. <laughs> <laughs> just means yearly. Okay, I could have said that. All right. <laughs> Annually, whatever. All time. Sorry. It just popped in there. It sounded good. I threw it's it out there. Fine. Fucking the source. I can be a bit loquacious. Okay. All right. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> I, we gotta. We gotta stop. All right. So uh, hit up our Patreon. All our social media. All that good stuff. Yeah, uh, we did. We, we, we gotta welcome our new patron, Brad. Yeah. Woo. Brother Brad. Thanks for hopping on board. We we appreciate all our patrons. Yeah, we love you guys. Uh, yeah, that, that's it for this week. Happy that's to be it back. For this week. Yeah, I'm super excited to be back. I did my research while Sean napped and then he woke up and did all the chores. He did so many chores and then he finished his research and now here we are. And that's that. So thanks for listening. Yep. Another one in the can or whatever they say nowadays. <laughs> What when it's a digital? That's how the that's how the beef stew gets made. That's how the <laughs> cheese whiz gets in the can. Yeah, on the cracker. That's how the cheese whiz gets on the cracker. That's, that's a good how that's easy a, cheese goes down. That's a good new idiom. We're gonna yep. use that. That's it. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>